Good to have you guys with us. Did you guys get rained on? How many finally, how many finally got your car washed? Yeah, won't have to wash it again for until the next rainstorm. What a beautiful rainstorm that was. It came down pretty hard. Now we have a beautiful day. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series. I'm excited about this series, Encounters with God. We're going to look at Old Testament characters and their encounter with God and how it changed everything about them. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 3. If you've ever wondered why this world is so messed up, well, we're going to answer that question for you in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, Encounters with God, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15 is what we'll be looking at. Uh, Bring your Bibles with you. Follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow on the big screen. But we do encourage you to bring your Bibles because it will mean so much more to you as you follow along with us. Um, How many use not one of these kind of Bibles, but uh, kind of a technology kind of Bible? Show of hands. Show of hands. Okay. Okay. How will I know if uh, you're actually reading the Bible or text messaging (laughs) or keeping up with the games or something like that? I won't know that, but I'll I'll come out from time to time and check on you to make sure that uh, I won't do that. But but that's good. Yeah. Nowadays, we have all kinds of uh, technological uh, advantages, and so they work... to help us. Uh, hiding is the name of this uh, weekend's teaching. So we've spent eight weeks really looking at how we can ruthlessly eliminate the noise and distractions of a crazy, busy life. And when we do that, then we can begin to experience life's greatest purpose, pursuit, and pleasure. What is that? Knowing God. Knowing God. There is nothing, there is nothing like knowing God, experiencing God, walking with God. But we've got to eliminate the the noise and the distractions and the things that keep us so busy that we miss God. And so now that we've kind of spent eight weeks on that, now let's talk about what it means to have an encounter with God. What does that look like? How does that change our lives? The thing that you'll begin to realize more than ever as we work through this teaching series is that God is closer than you think and more eager for you to encounter Him than you could ever imagine. There's a verse, Psalm 145.18, that has had an impact on my life. I read it a number of years ago, and I begin to meditate on it. And, and it's, a, it's a phenomenal verse that goes right along with what we're talking about here this morning and actually throughout this series, but Psalm 145.18, it says, God is close to those who call on Him, to those who call on Him in truth. So it's saying you can have an encounter with God, or you can experience God in your life if you call on Him. Oh, but wait, you must call on Him in truth. That word truth means a number of things. It means that you must go through Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, 14.6 of John. That's That kind of goes without saying, though a lot of people don't know that. But you also need to approach God based on the truth of who He is, based on His character. You just can't make up some idea of God and think that you're going to encounter God. But it has to be consistent with with, uh, what the Bible teaches us about God. But but the truth that I want us to understand this morning is the idea of this. God is close to those who call on Him, to those who call on Him in truth. It means this, that if you'll be real with God... He'll be real with you. But there's a problem. There's a major problem with that is that that we're not often very real. Uh, We have a problem. It's kind of the default mode of our heart. 
By nature, we are hiders. Hiding or pretense robs us of intimacy with people and the God who made us. And that's oftentimes what keeps us from really having an encounter with God and really knowing God. And that's what this text is all about, is that by nature, we are hiders. And, uh, and yet, by nature, God is a seeker, a seeker of hiders. Thank God for that. But as you'll see at the first part of the notes, but we have an adversary. Satan is a deceiver. We're going to look at all three of those in this study this morning. Maybe it's been a while since you've really experienced um, the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love. I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, when was the last time you had that overwhelming sense that, man, he is, he is for you and not against you. He cares for you. Or maybe it's been a while since you've experienced the strength of his power or the acclaim of being called his child. Could it be that you're hiding and you don't know it? Oftentimes that's what it is. So we're going to get to the bottom of this this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and then we'll dive into our text in just a moment. Let's pray. Father God, the Bible teaches us that community with people and you, the God who made us, is an indispensable condition of human flourishing. Yet by nature, we are hiders, we're pretenders because of our sin. It is often why we feel so lonely and isolated. We can only be loved to the extent that we are known. So help us to see through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you know us fully and love us completely. And therefore, we can come out from hiding and rid ourselves of these masks that keep us from experiencing you more satisfyingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this. So, once again, if you've ever wondered, why is this place such a mess? Why is this world such a mess? You don't, all you've got to do is turn on the news. And you'll know that really quickly. Uh, the answer is found in Genesis chapter 3. Let me begin reading verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And notice she kind of adds a little bit to it. So she's got a little confusion working here. And so she kind of adds to this, Neither shall we touch it lest we die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some of her husband, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Stop there just for a minute. This is, uh, that kind of stood out to me as I was reading. There's a number of things that stand out to me. But they are running from the presence of God. That's amazing. They're hiding from God. 
And we know that in the Bible, it says in 16, uh, 1611 of, of Psalm, in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why would we ever run from the presence of God? And yet we do. We do. We hide. That's by nature. We're, we're hiders. And, uh, and then in verse 9, but the Lord God, notice how God approaches him. He doesn't come, come to beat him up. I mean, this is just a beautiful picture of our God. This is the creator of the universe. This is how he approaches us when we're hiding from him. We're running from him. And it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice this is kind of a smokescreen. He doesn't actually get to the root of the problem. And that's oftentimes we get caught up in the symptoms of our issues, never getting down to the root issue. And he said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. This is a powerful verse right here. We'll come back to it later on in our study. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's talk about this. Satan is a deceiver by nature. We are hiders by nature. But God is a seeker by nature. Those are the three big ideas we're going to look at here this morning. So let's take a look at this. First of all, Satan is a deceiver by nature. Notice verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. Kind of describes the serpent. Uh, Satan, this is Satan taking on uh, the form of a serpent. And uh, not sure about all of that. We won't get into that because this is more really about how he the kind of impact that he has on our lives. As you read through Scripture, I mean, there's plenty of Scripture to talk about Satan. But I gave you a few here just to remind you of who he is. John 8.44 tells us uh, that he is a, a father of what? The father of lies. He's the father of lies. We also know, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, this is what he does to unbelievers, that he blinds unbelievers, he keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Many of you have encountered the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been stunned by that. And so you've shared that with your friends only for them to say, what's the big deal? No big deal. You know, you're kind of like, what? It is a big deal. But they can't see because it says that the God of this world has blinded their minds so that they cannot see. So that's what he does to unbelievers. But what does he do to believers? This is what he's going to try to do to you if you, have, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to work hard, 2 Corinthians 11.3, to lead you astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, that passion that you initially had when you encountered him and you thought, oh my goodness, I've never experienced anything quite like this. 
And then eventually after a while, maybe it begins to fade a bit. And then after a while, what he's doing, he's working to lead you astray from that that zeal, that fervency that you once had. He's working in your life to, uh, to get a hold of your life and to, to lead you astray. If, if, uh, if he can't get you to go to hell with him, he'll try to, to somehow um, smother the fire of your passion for Jesus to where just other things be, begin to take a higher priority in your life. And then it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it says that Satan comes as an angel of what? Of light. Of an angel of light. So he comes to us as maybe a brother or sister or family member or of a, of a belief system, religious system that, hey, they look like they're really good people. They're really trying to do good things. And it says that he can come as an angel of light. Those are just a few of the verses that talk about him. I don't think I'll ever forget this. I heard a story a number of years ago, and this is a story that I share in our Game of Life. I just shared it this last uh, week in our Game of Life class. And uh, the woman uh, went to the doctor, was diagnosed with cancer. The doctor didn't give her a good prognosis. In fact, uh, said that you need to go back home and get your, uh, your life and your home in order because you're going to die. And, of course, she was devastated by that. She goes home. She's just filled with unbelievable anxiety. And then she, she begins to become real angry with that anxiety, and she's angry at God, and she thinks, wait a minute, I, 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 better, I, I shouldn't be angry with God. So she kind of stuffed it down inside of her. And, and you guys know what happens when you have anger and turned inward. Anger turned inward becomes depression. She became very depressed, and the depression began to work on her to the degree that she was suicidal and she attempted suicide. And yet uh, she was unsuccessful in that attempt only to find out that it was a misdiagnosis. She really didn't have cancer. Here's the point. A lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. And that's how the enemy works in our lives. He will feed you one lie after another about you and about who God is. And if he can make you believe in a sense, in a spiritual sense, that you've got cancer. I mean, imagine that. A lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. There's, there's so much anxiety and anger and depression in our lives, oftentimes because we believe the lies. The lies that he hammers us with. And that's why, it, it, as it tells us in um, John in fact, uh, that was John eight forty four, where it says that he's a father of lies. Well, just a few verses before John eight forty four, which is John eight thirty one and thirty two, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, "If you continue in my word, then you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. The truth will set you free." Are you free this morning? Are you experiencing an amazing freedom unlike you've ever experienced before? If not, and you're a believer, it's because you're not living in the truth. And maybe somehow the enemy has gotten into your life and has given you a lot of lies about who you are and about who God is. A lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. And that's what he does. That's, that's how he works us over. Now let's continue on with the, with the notes. Let me give you some fill-in-the-blanks. So... Satan is a deceiver by nature. He creates mistrust of God's commandments and character. We see that right here in the text. Commandments speak of God's wisdom. So he tries to undermine God's wisdom, God's authority. You can't believe the Bible. It's been passed on from generation to generation. You know, different things like that. Um, that that's easily refutable. But verse 
2, he says, did God really say, and, and as I s- stated that uh, Eve responds by adding to what God said, so there's confusion there, has to do with his commandments, but also verse 4 has to do with his character. You will not surely die, is what he says. Now, now what's interesting about this is that he doesn't attack God's existence, God's power, God's knowledge, but he attacks really God's goodness as he's ta- attacking God's commandments, which is his wisdom, and God's character, God's love. It's really attacking God's goodness. And I believe that at the root of all of our problems is, is really we are doubting God's goodness. We doubt his goodness. I mean, take, for instance, the two prodigal sons and the prodigal. We typically would call it the prodigal son, but it's actually prodigal sons, 15th chapter of Luke. Remember the one guy that took the father's inheritance and went off and spent it on wild living? But we often miss the, the son that stayed at home. He stayed at home and he was further away from the father than the one that had left and came back. And yet, why would each of them, those guys do that? And, and by the way, this is how we miss God. We either do it by being religious or by being irreligious. The irreligious son took the inheritance and ran off, thinking, thinking that he could find greater satisfaction out in the world as opposed to on the farm with the father, representing our relationship with God. He was doubting the goodness of, of God. He was doubting. That's what we do. We doubt the goodness of God. But also the son that stayed home, he left the father without leaving the farm and, and felt like somehow he was a moralist and that he could earn his relationship. You can see that in the language there. He was also doubting the goodness of the father. Because the father says, wait a minute, I've always been with you. All of this has always been yours. What are you talking about? The kid's angry. It's because he doubted the, the goodness of God. So when we, when we take the route of religion or irreligion, we're doubting God's goodness. That's at the root of our, our problems. But also when people defect from the faith, two reasons why people defect from the faith is that they, they are uh, deceived by the pleasures of life because they actually believe that there's greater satisfaction in creation rather than in the Creator. And that couldn't be further from the truth, but that's part of doubting the goodness of God. But we also doubt the goodness of God through defecting from the faith. When we become disillusioned by the pressures of life, the pain of life, the suffering of life, because we doubt the goodness of God, we're thinking, wait, I'm a child of God. Why is this happening to me? What's going on? So the enemy gets in there and starts hammering us. By the way, in this series, we're going to talk about suffering. We're going to get to the book of Job and talk about how do we, how do we have an encounter with God even in the midst of that. So we're, we're headed in that direction. And so it's all about these lies. Satan doesn't leave thing marks on your flesh but lies in your heart to distort your view of God and his goodness. He really approaches a little bit like this. This is kind of the message that he's sending to Adam and Eve and he sends to us. If you obey God, you'll miss out. If you obey God, it will cut you off from your options. If you obey God, you won't be all you want to be. I mean, that's, that's his message. God's holding out on you. And, uh, and this is why we need to know how to wield our greatest weapon against our greatest enemy, uh, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is probably the greatest uh, spiritual warfare uh, section in the Bible. But in that, it gives us a, a bit of our equipment in coming against our adversary. But Ephesians six seventeen says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We need the Word of God. We need the truth because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Now, let, me, let me just pause there for a minute. I've kind of talked about this, but I just got to have a sense this morning that maybe some of you are just experiencing way too much anxiety and anger and depression and just all kinds of stuff going on, and you don't need to. If you could understand the truth about who God is and what He has in store for you and how much He loves you. And you could just, uh, just kind of absorb that this morning and let God speak to you. He loves you. He loves you. You don't need to be stressed out. He's going to take care of you. He's going to lead you through whatever you're going through. I know it's, it can be overwhelming. So sometimes I really believe that uh, trials are overwhelming. It's because we, we doubt the goodness of God. Temptations are way too attractive because we doubt, we doubt the goodness of God. It takes us to the next one. He does, not, he does this not with strong arguments but a sneering atmosphere. We're talking once again Satan. Satan is a deceiver by nature. So he creates mistrust of God's commandments and character, his wisdom and love. And, and what's interesting is that he doesn't really give strong arguments here. It's not a strong argument. Verse uh, 1, did God really say it? It's just sneering. You will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. See, he's mocking what God said. First Peter 5, 8 says, be self-controlled and alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Why, why a roaring lion? He's trying to intimidate you. He's a bully. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this stat, but 80% of our evangelical kids lose their faith in college. Did you know that? And did you know that most of them don't lose their faith in college because of a a strong argument against Christianity? It's typically an atmosphere. It's a a, a sneer. You believe what? You got to be kidding. It's an atmosphere, not a strong argument. He doesn't bring any arguments to Adam and Eve. He's creating an atmosphere of intimidation. And uh, he's a bully. He's trying to work on them. Um, next time someone says that to you, by the way, you, you know, uh, here's, here's how you need to respond. You know, you're sharing your faith and then someone says, you've got to be kidding. You believe the Bible? You believe that Jesus is God's son? He came to rescue us? That's ridiculous. Next time someone says that to you, a proper response would be, well, that is a dogmatic assertion trying to create an atmosphere. It's not really a defensible argument. So could you please tell me why you think what I believe is untenable or invalid? Just remember that, okay? Okay? So you've got to know that there's a major difference between dogmatic assertion and a defensible argument. Just because the guy's got a, you know, he's a doctor in some kind of history doesn't make it valid. I hear a lot of guys make dogmatic assertions and they have very little defensible arguments. The Christian faith is historical, factual, evidential. It's uh, intellectually sound. But you've got to take it, it's got to go further than that. I mean, you can have all the evidence. You, you need to know what you believe, and you need to know why you believe what you believe. We need to teach our kids that. And, and by the way, it's mom and dad's, that's, that's uh, your, primarily your responsibility. We're here to help you and assist you in that. But you need to teach your kids not only know what they believe, but why they believe what they believe. Because if they don't know why they believe what they believe, eventually they're going to lose the what. But they have to have the why. But it's got to be more than the what and the why. It's got to be an experience. It's got to be intellectually coherent, but it's got to be existentially compelling. 
that they've got to know Jesus. They've got to know the Jesus of the Bible. That it's just not a bunch of information that they know, but they have encountered him. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I first graduated from high school, got involved, I was in construction, went to local 469, plumber, pipe fitters, local union, went to their apprenticeship. And oh my goodness, the sneering that I had to put up with uh, when I worked at the Coronado Generating Station up, up north out of St. John's, Arizona. These dudes that I worked around, I mean, I, welcome to the real world. I hear I'm a little naive kid raised pretty much in a Christian home. Fortunately, I had a good solid foundation. And later on in my high school years, I had really established my faith. I, I, uh, I not only knew what I believed, but I knew why I believed what I believed. I did a lot of research, read a lot of books because I really needed to have that validated in my heart. But it was beyond that. I had, an, had truly encountered Jesus. And his love for me was better than anything in life. And so when these guys would sneer at me, basically saying, Oh, yeah, we went through that phase one time also. You'll be just like us. And I remember the guys trying to get me to, you know, we'd, they, they would try to get me to stop off at the bar on the way home, spend a few hours there and hang out. And, and I was newly married at the time, and I would say, uh, I'd tell them, well, I don't really care to do that. I'd like to get home with my wife. Oh, ho, ho, I never heard the end of that one. <laughs> Your wife? Yeah, whooped. You're, and they would use language that I can't use here. They would say... They would say and call me names and stuff like that. But it was interesting. It was really interesting how kind of initially it kind of set me back because I was kind of shocked by it. But because of the, uh, thank God, you know, for my, for my mom and dad uh, for giving me a good solid foundation. I just kind of like, it was like water on a duck's back. I just said, well, sorry, I'll have to start driving myself if this is what you guys want to do. And didn't shove it down the throat or do anything like that. I just said, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going there. But that's, that gave me that ability to be able to say, Man, I got something better by far. I know you guys are out chasing after all kinds of things, thinking it's going to satisfy you, but there's nothing. There's nothing that compares to, to knowing Him. And, um, and that's, that's part of it. And so you've got to be ready even for the sneering atmosphere. But here's the next thing. Here's ultimately what He's trying to do. The essence of sin is me putting myself in God's place. This is what He's up to. So he's uh, trying to get us to mistrust God's uh, wisdom and love. And he does this with a sneering atmosphere so that we begin to put ourselves in God's place. You notice that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, uh, that is pleasures, pleasures of life, and it was a delight to the eyes. That's the possessions of life. And then the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's power. That's really what it says in 1 John 2.16. So when you take your growing notes this next week or get together with your small group, 1 John 2.16 talks about don't love the world or the things of the world. It actually goes through those three things, the pleasures, possessions, and the power in life. They were the three areas that Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 4. And so what we see with Adam and Eve is that... Really, the will only does what the heart most wants. And, and if you really kind of would dive down into your heart, one of the reasons why we are led astray is because it always starts with, it, it, it kind of goes, these go together. I discovered this a number of years ago, even as I was looking at my own heart. It starts with unbelief. It always starts with unbelief. You begin to doubt God's character. Unbelief leads to pride, which, which is this. You begin to put yourself in God's place. You think you know better than God. You're smarter than God. 
and he's holding out on his love anyway, and so I'm, I can find it on my own. I can do it on my own. And then the third one is idolatry. We begin to worship and serve created things more than the creator because we try to find something to fill the void that, that we have now in our heart because we are alienated from God. And so it goes unbelief, pride, idolatry. They work together in our lives. And you'll notice here in verse 6, sin enjoys company. That Eve... She also gave some to her husband. I found this really interesting as I was studying this, and I studied this a number of years ago and have studied this for years, is that where was Adam this whole time when she was being tempted? He was right there, wasn't he? He is the epitome of an irresponsible man and husband. He's setting back, stepping back, and watching her be duped by the enemy. And as she's being duped, then she just invites him right into her sin. When he should have stepped in there and said, Wait a minute, honey, sweetheart, come here. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And this is why. And and he should have lovingly consoled her and talked with her and let her back out of that. But, But he doesn't. Now, if I mistrust his goodness, think about it, I will inevitably put myself in, in God's place. And let me give you some ways that we do that. Just real quick, we're gonna, we'll keep going. We'll, the next part of this will pick up pace. But obviously, lie, we lie, cheat, and steal. I mean, any path outside of God's will or God's word is evidence that I think I'm smarter and more loving than God. Anytime you live outside of what God has directed us in His Word, because this, this Word is in His wisdom and His love. He's established, hey, this is how I want you to live. This is a wonderful way to live. I know you better than you know yourself. And if you live your life according to my Word, saturate your life in my Word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a great way to live. And yet, when we take a path that's outside of what God's Word says, is that uh, we're trampling on His wisdom and love. Let me uh, hit you even a little bit harder than just that. For instance, anxiety. Anxiety would be that. When you experience anxiety, anxiety is like this. I have an idea of how my life should go, and I'm afraid that God isn't going to get it right. You're putting yourself in God's place. And so, so when we cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us, I mean, we, we certainly, I, I, you know, over time, I start feeling a little better about that, only for the next day to pick it back up and think that I'm smarter than him and become anxious again. What about bitterness? Bitterness is, uh, it goes along like this. I have an idea of how my life should have gone and it didn't go that way, so I'm angry at God. How about unforgiveness? How do we uh, take God's place in this? We put ourselves in his place with unforgiveness. I know exactly what my perpetrator deserves and I'd like to be the one who gives it to them. Huh? How many of you ever felt like that? Yeah. God, can I do your work for you? I would love to. I know exactly what they need and deserve. No, you don't. Okay? You don't. That's putting yourself in God's shoes. And in fact, you would pity them if you knew what what was awaiting them in God and His judgment. And that would help you to kind of work through that. Let's go on. So Satan is a deceiver. Now we need to move on. But... We are hiders by nature. Let's work through this. We hide because of shame. 
Shame is being troubled over who we are. Look at verse 7. They knew that they were naked, verse 7, after they ate of the tree. Though the word shame is not used here, it is uh, strongly implied because this verse is the opposite of Genesis 2.25. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That's Hebrew idiom meaning they were fully known and fully loved. And so this is totally the opposite. So now they are naked and filled with shame because they feel this need to have to cover up. They begin to cover up, uh, you know, they begin to hide from themselves, from one another, and ultimately they're they're hiding from, from God. But before this, they were naked and unashamed. Let's think about that just for a minute. Hebrew idiom. By the way, it's also a Hebrew idiom when it says that they walked with God. God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. They walked with him. They knew him. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful picture of our relationship with God and knowing Him. And so they had, they had this, this relationship with God that so filled them emotionally. And they had this emotional wealth. They were fully known, fully loved. Nothing quite like that. There was contentment. There was, there was confidence. There was courage. There was compassion. All that they needed. And so obviously, immediately when they turned their back on God... They're spiritually alienated. It immediately creates a a psychological alienation. It's like, ah, what's going on? There's an emptiness inside because it was meant for God to fill. It was meant to find our, our deepest sense of identity and meaning and purpose in God. And now there's that emptiness inside. In fact, the more you begin to realize that you are fully known and fully loved by God... I mean, you can handle anything. (laughs) You can face anything. It's amazing. Because you know that God is for you and not against you. He's with you. I mean, success or failure or acceptance or rejection or wealth or poverty, none of that's really consequential in your life because you have Him that, that transcends everything that you face. Not that those things don't bother you or have some impact, but they don't, they don't, they don't overpower you as they often do or as they often did. Next one, what do we do with that? Is that we, we cover our shame with fig leaves, self-salvation projects. That's what they did. They covered up. It says in verse 7, they sewed fig leaves, sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. In other words, this is what we try to do: we uh, we work ourselves to death because we're trying to prove to ourselves and to others that we're valuable. We try to act smarter, stronger, wealthier, more together than what we really are, because there's an emptiness inside. We put others down to elevate ourselves, to prove that we're valuable. Um. We become vulnerable. We need to control what others see of us. So, so we hide ourselves, hide from ourselves, from each other and from God. If you had a chance to watch any of the Olympics, there's a guy by the name of Stephen Holcomb who won two bronze medals, uh, one for the two-man and one for the four-man bobsled in Sochi. Anybody get a chance to see that? Did you, did you hear a little bit of his story, about his story and how... In fact, I read this article from, I did a little research on it and read an article from readers, uh, actually from Sports Illustrated magazine. It was out a few years ago talking about him. But before the champion driver, this Stephen Holcomb, before the champion driver conquered 
In eye ailment that nearly stole his vision and ruined his career, Holcomb nearly gave in to the darkness of suicide. He actually attempted suicide and was unsuccessful because of his, his eye disease that kept him from continuing to pursue the Olympics and that level of performance. And then it goes on, it says, to hide his disease from friends and teammates, he withdrew into isolation and never let on that it had reached a critical stage. Now, why would someone do that? Why would we do that? Shame. We're troubled over who we are because we've uh, misplaced our identity. And because we have built our identity on something, first of all, is, that's, uh, that's fragile. We've built our identity on something in creation rather than the creator. And we all do it. And, and those are fig leaves. We put these things on to try to make ourselves look bigger if we would only go back to the source, to God, and get our sense of identity from, from Him. I, I, I love our, our new facility here. And it, one of the things, though, that I know that it kind of troubles people, and we've got a pretty full house here and uh, got a great group on Saturday night, and we'll have another good group come in here on uh, the second service this morning. But from time to time, I'll have people say, yeah, I really like it, but it's so intimate. It feels like you're right in our face. Anybody feel like that? Anybody feel like I'm like right in your face? Okay, you do? Okay. You're sitting on the front row. but Okay. And I noticed that this whole front row is just totally empty. Everybody else is kind of scattered out a little bit. But my wife told me uh, just within the last year or so, she overheard a conversation from someone that was, they were attending a big mega church here in the valley. And uh, they were going to the mega church. And they thought, hey, let's try out a little smaller church, a little better community. And they went for a little while and they didn't like it. Because they said, because everybody knows us and they know when we're there and not there. You're kind of missing the point, aren't you? Don't you think people are missing the point when they say that? I just want to kind of hide out. And I hear people say that. That's very common today in American church. That's why the, American, uh, the mega churches thrive. And we're actually way above average as a church. And you could actually kind of hide out here too. And people do it. But guess what? We're going to hunt you down. We're going to find you. No, we won't do that. You might be able to hide out for a while, but we're going to, we're going to press you. We're going to push you because you're missing the point. You need to connect. You need to connect with people and the God who made you. And when you don't do that, you're going to be unhealthy. And, and anonymity is so important these days for people. I just want to slide in and slide out. Wait a minute. You need community. You need people in your life. You need to get involved in a small group where you're sharing your life. This guy isolated, but that's natural for us to isolate. That's the default mode. And that's what the enemy wants. He's going to isolate you, make you feel like you're all alone. Nobody knows the troubles you are experiencing. Oh, my goodness. Poor me. Poor me. And he gets you in this pity party, and you just get, he wants to hammer you. He will isolate you. And you need that community. And that's what you see with Holcomb. And I don't know how he pulled out of it. Well, he actually went and got his eyes worked on and, and was able to see better. And he got back into the Olympics and won two bronze medals in this uh, recent Olympics. But we desperately need each other. And there's that, that tendency. We cover, we cover up with uh, fig leaves. Let me read to you real quick. This is from uh, John Ortberg, his book, uh, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. And uh, it's a great book, but in this book, he kind of goes through a lot of what, um, what we do 
to isolate. Oh, I just came across a card. I got to tell you this story here real quick. My sister gave me, the, I was going to say that it was my sister. I wasn't supposed to tell you it was my, that it was my sister. But now that you know it's my sister, I don't think my sister's in here, is she? No, she isn't. Okay, let's just keep it between us, okay? She, was, uh, she went over to this sportsman's warehouse over here by Costco. And she needed to run in there real quick. And, and there was the only parking spot that was available was right next to an old junkie car that this guy had parked kind of on the line. So she says, oh, I'll just I'll keep my car over and I'll park on the line too, kind of on this side. Because I don't want him to swing open his door and, you know, mess up my vehicle. So she runs in, comes back out, and she's got this on her window. And it's uh, parking 101. It's a card that says, insert A. It's got a little car. And then it has this little, you know arrow that shows between the lines into B, like park between the lines, badparkingcards.com. And we just laughed about it. We go, you got to be kidding. Somebody has the time to pull a Barney five. Citizens arrest, citizens arrest. You parked outside the line. I'm going to give you this card so you'll know that I'm mad. It's like, get a life. What's wrong with you? It's like, you're distracted. Why are you distracted over a lot of trivial things like this? You would spend money on a card so you could put it on people's windshield? That's ridiculous. I'd like to meet this person. That is amazing to me. That's, those are smoke screens. Those are distractions in our life. We make such a big deal out of nothing. Out of absolutely nothing. We cracked up. We just thought, you've got to be kidding. Welcome to America. We get stressed out over a lot of stuff here. And it's, it's just part of the, the veil or the facade or the, or the fig leaves, the fig leaves that we have. Now listen to what John Ortberg says. Don't tell my sister that I shared that. Just between us. Okay. John Ortberg says, Some people hide behind superficial conversation. They may make lots of small talk and may even be quite good at it. They may talk freely about the weather or their work or their favorite team, but all their words are a shield. They're hiding their hearts. Some people hide behind humor. They may have a great gift for making you laugh, but you notice over time that when the conversation gets tense or sad or begins to get personal, they find some way to make a joke. They hide behind a a smiling face. He goes on and says, Some people use their intelligence as a veil. Others use ignorance. Some some veil themselves with busyness in their work, in their vast competence and success. Some people have high-tech veils with remote controls or mouse pads. Ironically, many people in the church veil themselves with spirituality. They quote Bible verses or speak of having deep peace or speak of God being in control. They may say these things, may say things that sound impossible to argue with, but their words are moats of protection, not bridges of relationship. It may be a stained glass veil, but it's a veil just the same. What is your veil? If you're not sure... The people closest to you can tell you. It's good. I like that. Okay, here's the next one. When our fig leaves, we're talking fig leaves, when we cover, we cover our shame with fig leaves, self-salvation projects, when our fig leaves get blown off, we blame shift. And inevitably, they will get blown off. 
verse 10, as I stated, Adam centers on the symptom. And that's typically what we do. We look at the symptoms. I was afraid instead of the disease. No, I sinned. And then in verse 11, God asked another two questions. Did you notice that? So after he says, where are you? I was afraid, so I hid. And then God says, who told you? Have you eaten from the tree? And Adam reflects on the importance of taking personal responsibility for his actions, summons his courage, and responds, The woman you put here with me! Don't you love that? Who does he throw under the bus? The, the wife. The wife. I mean, Adam has come a long ways from chapter 2, where she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, that's the first song in the Bible. He's like singing to her. <laughs> he sees Eve for the first time and goes, whoa, man. Woohoo! I love her. She's everything I've always wanted. To It was the woman you gave me. He throws her right under the bus. And notice he says, you gave me. God, it's your fault. It's you and her. It's your and her's fault. Not my fault. See, we blame shift. We blame shift. And you'd think that, uh, by the way, no guy would do that nowadays. Huh? What do you think, guys? Help me out. Would, would you do that? I wouldn't do that. Yeah. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. And then notice he goes to Eve. She says what? The serpent deceived me. Remember this a number of years ago? Maybe you're not old enough. The devil made me do it. How many remember that? Oh my goodness, you guys are old. The devil made me do that. Listen, there's no healing in hiding. There's no healing in hiding We all struggle in many ways. We all are desperate for our Savior. And the quicker we admit that and the quicker we hang out with a group of people, I think that's oftentimes why people get a little bit... I mean, there's a lot of people who don't like Desert Breeze because we're way too transparent. Because they have to deal with stuff. We, have to, we really look inside. We look deep inside our hearts. We're all a mess. We desperately need our Savior. That's a fact. That's a fact. And guess what? We have a Savior, and He seeks us out, and He loves us. Oh, my goodness. Do you have any idea how much He loves you? God is a seeker by nature. From His goodness, He takes the initiative and seeks our repentance. God is not a cosmic dictator, but a loving Father taking the initiative and demonstrating the very thing Satan got Eve to doubt, His love. He comes asking questions, where are you? I mean, He's like a counselor, kind of probing deep into our heart. Where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten from the tree? You see, an omniscient God doesn't ask questions for information, but to bring revelation to the one being asked. He's trying to help, help Adam and Eve come. By the way, by the way, did you notice that she was kind of the one that led the way a little bit? He should have stepped in, run interference, but he didn't. But guess who he comes back to? Guess who God comes back to to hold accountable for how this family went down? Who is it? Adam. Adam's responsible. And he comes to Adam and says, where are you? And he's the one that he has a face-to-face with God and works through this. And so God is asking these questions to probe deep. And, and I used to think that repentance was a bad thing. Repentance is a wonderful thing. 
Because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's to recognize, wait a minute, I've been on this path over here. What in the world am I thinking? Am I out of my mind? I'm trampling on his love and wisdom when he offers fullness of life by following him. Repentance is a, is a change of mind, a change of attitude and action towards sin. Coming back to the Savior. Repentance is sorrow for the pain our sin has caused God. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. And that's a great verse for you to go to and study a little bit more because oftentimes we'll have people in our lives that have uh, been perpetrators and offended us and then they repent and they come back. How do I know it's for real? Because they've done this many times before. You need to read 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 because there's a major difference. There's kind of a false or a, a worldly kind of repentance, but then there's a godly kind of repentance and that's what it talks about. It makes a distinction between the two. But a worldly repentance is sorrow for the pain my sin has caused me. That's a, that's a worldly repentance. It won't last. But true repentance is a, is a sorrow for the pain my sin has caused you in God. It's what David said in Psalm 51, against you, you alone have I sinned. Sin is not so much the breaking of some formal code, but the trampling on our relationship with God and the despising of His wisdom and love. And here's the last point. The essence of salvation is God putting Himself in my place. So this is really amazing. If you can get this, you're going to begin to understand Christianity. And most people really don't understand Christianity. They immediately think it's religion, it's moralism, it's about earning salvation. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that sin is... Me taking my place, salvation, is God coming to this earth and taking my place. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died to give me fullness of life. It is amazing. It is stunningly beautiful. It is, as C.S. Lewis said, it is simply irresistible. And in fact, verse 15 is the proto-evangel. It's the first gospel message powerful. Uh, Let me read it again. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, talking to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, Here's a little bit of the idea. Uh, There's, for instance, you take your family out to Thunderbird Park and you're hiking. By the way, you need to watch out for snakes out there. This is the time of the year snakes come out. Nancy and I were out walking Skunk Creek. And there was a snake that came across our path. And so I pushed Nancy out in front of us. That's the only wise thing to do, isn't it? And, uh, and she just, she bit the head of that snake off. She's one tough girl. No, actually, I would not dare do that. I would not dare do that. And so the man that I am, I would go, And I got a long, long stick and went, get off here, out of here. The snake left. But, but the idea here in this story in, in verse 15 is it's like a family hiking Thunderbird Park and a poisonous snake very quickly slithers out in the middle of them. But the father, but the father goes after the snake to stomp on, its, stomp on its head, to crush its head. He destroys the snake saves the family, but in the process, the snake bites him and he dies. That's the picture of verse 15. Verse 15, basically, it's saying that a human being, the seed of the woman, is going to destroy Satan's sin and death. 
but get a fatal wound in the process. I wonder who that could be. This is amazing. Right from the get-go, we blow it and God steps in and begins to rescue us. I mean, if you have this idea that God's somehow vengeful, angry God, I don't know where you got that because here's a God that's rescuing us. You know, judgment is the inevitable consequence of, of us just rejecting God because he's, he is a just God. And yet he came in and he, he took our pain and our suffering and he did it for us. And he sent his son, Jesus. In fact, this is the whole message. This is the, the storyline of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis 1 and 2, creation, Genesis 3, fall. From that on, you have redemption and then revelation, restoration. He's coming back, set up his kingdom. It's amazing. It's breathtaking. He came to rescue us. He loves us. It is amazing. It's just, and then if you read this text out a little bit further, you see in verse 21, what does he do? The Lord God made garments of skin and clothed them. We're going to talk about that next week. You need to come back next week because we're going to talk about the righteousness that he gives us. It's the 15th chapter of Genesis. He clothes them. What's the clothing? Righteousness, right standing with God. He does that for us. Not something that we do. We enter into it by faith in Jesus and what he did. It's a phenomenal story. We'll read about it next week. But this is, this is amazing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Just take a moment here. Let's just reflect on what we've learned this morning. Just pray. So, God, we pray this morning that you'd help us to see that that Satan is a deceiver by nature, trying to get us to doubt doubt your goodness, and that we are hiders by nature because because of our sin, putting ourselves in your place. But, God, you are a seeker by nature and have sent your Son to seek and to save those those who are lost by putting himself in our place, living the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died to give us fullness of life. God, help us to see that there's no healing and hiding. And because we have the assurance of your love, no matter what, we can stop pretending Help us to see that when when we encounter you, God, through the sacrificial love of Jesus, we are swept up into a story of such cosmic drama and beauty that we are forever changed. God, may we continue to be reminded of the Bible single storyline that it's not about what we must do to be right with you, but it's about what you, God, what you've done by sending your son to make us right with you. That is amazing. The Bible is an amazing adventure story about a young hero, Jesus, who comes from a far country, heaven, to win back his lost treasure, and that's us. So, God, we pray this morning, overtake us by your love. And may that love overflow our lives to those within our circle of touch. For your glory, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend.